least you didn't put your gusher in your juice this time. I'm not drinking juice this time. At least you didn't put gusher in your Coke this time. <laughs> we don't have pretzels. This is an audio medium. At least you didn't put gusher in your glass of blood and tears this time. <laughs> Speaking of blood. Welcome back. <laughs> to oh I hate that that's one of my pet peeves when a podcast opens with welcome back it's like bitch how do you know I've been gone this could be somebody's first episode if it's your first episode welcome if it's not your first episode welcome to another episode of soon to be a major motion podcast I am your host Billy Beck I am your co-host Cody Beck and this is where we talk about movies that are based on books is that the best I've ever done that probably oh yeah. god we didn't struggle <laughs> retire <much>. now <laughs> call it quits Billy we peaked <laughs> we have survived our hunger games if the hunger games was doing a podcast we day. ate well tonight let's <laughs> Uh, yeah, we're we're talking about this. Oh, there's some schmutz on my desk. What is that? It's probably food. Can you hand me a tissue? I don't know what that is. Um, <laughs> it's probably sauce of some sort. All right, sort. this is going to sound like thunder rumbling on this microphone because it's on the table. I might leave this in. We'll see At how it sounds in the At least it's giving me time to eat my gushers. Yes, eat your gushers. Don't dunk them in your bevy. <laughs> Not to bother me. Stop smelling this. When did we have barbecue sauce? <laughs> have you been since we last recorded? Uh, I've been pretty good. I have been playing a lot of The Sims, um, The Sims 4 specifically, because I want to live in a better world. After two and a half thousand hours in The Sims 1. <laughs> Pro- honestly. I feel like that number's low. <laughs> it's probably a little low, honestly. Um, but, so you all know my name is Cody. The Sims randomly generates names for NPCs, and my Sim... I'm playing a version of myself because I'm an adult. As we all do. Yes. Uh, so my sim's name is Cody. And the pre-gen sim that she happened to get married to is also named Cody, spelled differently. And we had babies. And it happened to be twins. So both of them are also named Cody. So there are four sims in this house named a variation of Cody because I can commit to a goddamn bit. None of them are Cody Jr. Mm-mm. All variations of Cody. So that's how I've been. How have you been? Depressed. Why would that be? What what possibly could you have said in the last pod that could have changed? So, last time out we mentioned uh, it was the final regular season game for Angel City. We could make the playoffs. We ended up winning that game 5-1. to one. It was a resounding victory. It was the best game of football I've ever seen that team play. And it might have been the most complete performance I've ever seen a team play live. Uh, It was just beautiful. I was... The weed might have had something to do with it. But I was, like, literally in tears when Sid LaRue scored that bicycle kick. Is that the first time you've ever seen a team you care about win? I mean, I've seen City win live a couple times. Like, in the stadium. Oh, I forgot about Um, those. I forgot about your city trips. And Angel City's won games we've been to, but that was, like, a dominant performance. And watching one of my favorite players ever score that bicycle kick goal blew my mind. And it was, like, two minutes after that Claire Emsley backheeled to M.A. Vignola to that one-timer into the near post from Savannah McCaskill, which is just... filthy. Gorgeous, gorgeous football. Beautiful. So that was Sunday, and then Friday was the first playoff game, which we lost um, to uh, 
Megan Rapinoe's O.L. Reign in her farewell season. And fair enough, she's moving on in the playoffs. Allie Krieger in her farewell season is moving on with Gotham FC. So these legends are going to have one last run. Fine by me. We made the playoffs. That was the goal this year. Next year, what I want is a home playoff game. Honestly, I know the team wants to win. O.L. Reign was the better team on that night. That was a rough game to it, watch. It was a defensive battle. Both teams played well, considering what they were each trying to do. And we knew once it hit like the 75th minute, whoever scored was going to win it. I and it just still, happened to be them. I mean, there was also the issue of fucking Brad. Fuck Brad. Fucking Brad. Fucking Brad. Brad is, the, uh, is a referee in the NWSL who last season uh, we accidentally learned his name and he made some bad calls. And now every time we see him, we know there's trouble. It's like seeing Ted Uncle show up in an MLS game. It's just not for, good. For the record, I recognized this motherfucker <laughs> from the back on the pitch. <laughs> and I said, there's no way it's fucking Brad. And it was fucking Brad. <laughs> and at least it wasn't J.C. Griggs. Mm. And then, of course, that was on uh, this past Friday, uh, as of day of recording. Yesterday, Phillies lost Game 7 of the NLCS to the Arizona Diamondbacks. It was their first ever Game 7? First ever Game 7, because not every series is a 7-game series. Some are 3, some are 5. We've played Game 5s before. It was the first time in franchise history. I think, what, 1883 was when the Phillies were founded? I, you, that, they said that fact on commentary yesterday, and I was just like, that you, sounds You thought fake. you misheard. I did. But yeah, it was the first time in franchise history that they lost a Game 7. I was like, is it the first one against the Diamondbacks? Like, it can't be. the, the Baseball's no. been around since forever. Look, not every series goes 7. It's, it's special when it does. And this year, both series went 7 games, the AL and the NLCS. Mm-hmm. And both times, the team that was in the World Series last year lost. So we were one game away from a replay of last year's World Series. But of course, what that means is, since the 5th of November 2022... I have seen my Phillies get knocked out of an NLCS. I have seen my Eagles lose a Super Bowl. I have seen my Philadelphia Union get knocked out of the semifinals of the League Cup, the semifinals of the CONCACAF Champions League. And of course, on that fateful day, November 5th, 2022, I was in the stadium as my Philadelphia Union lost the MLS Cup final and got home just in time to watch the Phillies lose the World Series. It has been a long, hard year for Philadelphia sports fans. But it's okay. It's been fucking emotionally brutal. And Phillies fans, sorry, fans of Philadelphia sports in general, Phillies fans, Eagles fans, Flyers fans, whatever you want to call them, Philly fans have a reputation. And everyone likes to bring up, everyone likes to conflate multiple incidences and say that we threw we batteries. We threw batteries at Santa Claus. That's not what happened. There was an Eagles game where, if I recall correctly, the guy who was supposed to be Santa Claus like didn't even show up. And there was like a teenager dressed as Santa Claus. And fans, like he was egging on fans and they were throwing snowballs at him. That dude, he actually passed away not too long ago, a couple years back. And he would go to bars and drink for free because he was Santa Claus. And he loved it. Like, he loved knowing that he was the Santa Claus, right? I wish I could recall his name. 
Um, but absolute Philly sports legend, that guy. The batteries thing. Honestly, whose idea was it to give away batteries at a, at a freaking game? It was a Phillies game. And it was... I don't remember the whole saga because I was pretty young, but I do remember watching the game when it happened. I was watching this game live. Uh, I think it was Duracell or Energizer had a giveaway at the gate, as you do to get fans Such in the door, and they gave idea. away batteries. And I think it was just two guys in the outfield uh, were the throwers. And the reason was one of the, I think he was an outfielder, J.D. Drew. And I want to say he plays for the Braves. Again, I was young. I don't really remember. But he was attached to the Phillies as a prospect. And everyone in the city expected him to play for the Phillies, and he was going to be this great player. And he ended up picking a rival. So his first game at, uh, I can't remember if this was the Vet or Citizens Bank Park, but his first game in Philly, he had batteries thrown at him. They don't give away things like that anymore. <laughs> so what I'm but hearing... My point being, because of these incidents... And, you know, like, they had to grease the light poles when the Eagles won the Super Bowl. Win or lose, they had to grease the light poles. Here, here's the thing. Philly sports fans are incredibly passionate. Incredibly passionate. Borderline psychotically passionate about our sports. And it's because sports is a huge part of the Philadelphia identity. When it, like Whenever people come to town, it's like, oh, what about the cheesesteaks and the Rocky statues? Like, oh, that's second to fucking sports. It's how we communicate. I always thought it was weird that people would, like, make fun of small talk being, oh, what's, oh, the weather, you know? Like, that's, like, the go-to small talk. Because I never experienced that growing up outside of Philadelphia. My small talk was, did you catch the game? And depending on what day it was, that could have been two or three games. Could have been the Phillies, could have been the, the Sixers. Did you catch the game? And then if the answer was yes, then you and the stranger had something to talk about. It's, it's part of the Philly identity. And we're proud to be passionate. Because that's how we see it from the inside. It's, it's just passion. It's love. We're not all violent. There's more violence at Dodgers games. If you show up at a Dodgers game wearing Giants gear, there's like fights. There's like stabbings and stuff up in San Francisco at their games. That doesn't happen in Philly as much. There's a lot of fucking brutal trash talk. We'll <laughs> ruin your. We'll ruin you emotionally. <laughs> The most violence I've ever seen in person was at an LAFC game. Yeah, LAFC games scare the shit out of me. I'm nervous when I go. I have to, when I go like because I'm a, I always go as an away support, and I have to like I when I'm on the train going down I wear a sweatshirt I cover up my Philly gear because I don't want shit to happen on the subway. We weren't even near the three two five two. Oh, when when I went to the MLS Cup final, I had a half full Heineken thrown at me, hit me square in the chest. Right after Gareth Bale scored the uh, equalizer in extra time. I understand my Philly sports roots, and I finished that Heineken and stared down the section that threw it at me. Because I'm not a fucking coward. Is that how you got COVID? But, like, all of the, like, watch any LAFC game. There's beers thrown out on the field. Yeah. That doesn't happen. That happened in the in the Braves-Phillies series. There was a contested call, and the Braves... Fans weren't happy with the call and threw beers on the field. That didn't happen during game six or seven this week against the Diamondbacks. Because Philly fans are trash talkers. We're not necessarily all violent. We don't have... But we have that reputation because of those... Other, I, I'm ranting at this point just to get over my fucking depression over going through this shit again. And I'm watching the Eagles win week in and week out just knowing I'm going to be disappointed in February. So what I'm hearing is first... 
Uh, first and foremost, fuck the Astros. Oh, fuck them. Second. <laughs> fuck them long, fuck them hard. <laughs> fuck those cheating bitches. I don't even have, I care, I do not give two shits about baseball. You were asking me the rules the other day. <laughs> I could give two shits about baseball. Fuck the Astros. Come at me if you want to. They cheated. They're as bad as the fucking Patriots. And I will fight you and I will win. Second, we need to do Silver Linings Playbook. <laughs> Absolutely. I think we'll do that in the in the winter time. Because I remember watching the playoff games they're watching in that in that movie. I remember those games. But yeah, I, I my point being we're a passionate fan base that has seen two championships in the last forty years. Two. Two thousand eight Phillies, uh twenty seventeen, eighteen Eagles. And if you want to count uh, the union's 2020 supporter shield, you can, but that wasn't like the cup, you know? And the sad thing is I didn't even watch the final out of the 2008 world series because my roommate at the time would wear Phillies gear. Cause he was from Philly proper, he didn't but he hated, the, but he hated the Phillies. He just wore it as a fashion statement and I'm watching the game in the dorm room and the final out, I believe was a fly out uh, in foul territory. And as soon as the ball popped up, he turned the TV off. And it was an older, like, CRT TV. It took a little second to warm up. And by the time I turned it on, they were celebrating. I didn't see... And I had a rehearsal I was already late for. Like, I had to go. And I, I've i seen the out since, obviously, but I didn't get to see it live. So, losing again just fucking sucks, man. It sucks. <laughs> it fucking sucks. I hate it. What was what was the thing that you said about uh, living in Philly? It's terrible. You're surrounded by Philly sports fans all the time. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a hard place to live because everyone around you is a Philly sports fan. <laughs> You're surrounded by assholes. <laughs> Speaking of being surrounded by assholes. <laughs> Catching fire. Yeah. I don't think we need to talk about how we came to know the series we did that last episode yep uh i guess what we should do now is watch a trailer and then talk about a movie let's do that all right I understand that whatever i do it comes back to you and mom i don't want you to get hurt since the last games something's different i can see it what can you see saved us. I know that. But I can't go on acting for the cameras and then just ignoring each other in real life. She's not who they think she is. She has to be eliminated. I agree, but in the right way. At the right time. We have to go before they kill us. They will kill us. People want to fight. I'm staying here. They fought very hard in the game, as Miss Everdeen. But they were games. Would you like to be in a real war? Imagine thousands of your people dead. Your loved ones. Gone. What do I need to do? This is the 75th year of the Hunger Games. The tributes are to be reaped from the existing pool of victors. Hannah! I get to say goodbye. These games are going to be different. The 75th Hunger Games! 
the girl on fire! you guys to forget everything you think you know about the games. Last year was child's play. This year, you're dealing with all experienced killers. Any last advice? Stay alive. Let's get into it. Yeah. Um, I'm just gonna do the plot super quick here because there's a lot of meat that I want to sink my teeth into. And book and movie are very similar with some notable differences that we're gonna bring up. That'll be the thing. Um, so it's uh, almost a year later. Katniss and Peeta still live in District 12. They have their own homes now in Victor's Village, which is very sparse and barren because the only other person that lives there is Hamish. Uh, they are preparing to go on the victory tour, uh, where they're going to visit every district along the way as the victors and pay their respects to the fallen tributes and move on. Before they leave, President Snow pays Katniss an unexpected visit. He doesn't believe her that she loves PETA. And he's fucking right. And she admits as such. So he wants her to make it believable. He wants her to convince him during this victory tour that they're in love. Unfortunately, the first stop is District 11, and when she sees Rue's face, Katniss, you know, speaks her heart instead of what's written on the cards by Effie Trinket, and causes a riot in which uh, an innocent is executed in front of the population. What's that, what's that um, chant about... I don't see no riot here. You're the ones who brought riot gear. Yeah. Yeah, the peacekeepers who are armed to the fucking teeth to, you know, keep the peace. Poignant. So as they continue on their victory tour, they keep playing up to the cameras that they really love each other. But it's very clear that they have no emotion behind what they're reading on the cards. They're just doing it so that people don't get shot. At the end of the victory tour, they have a banquet party at the Capitol... Um, where there's actually a great scene where they're full from eating so much and someone hands them basically a glass of Ipecac. Like, oh, throw it up and then you can eat more. And they're like, we're starving at home and they eat just to throw it up. But anyway, experiencing the decadence of the capital, one of the last stops, they announce that they're engaged because they're really trying to sell it to Snow. But Snow makes it clear, I ain't bought it. Mm-hmm. The next Hunger Games is the 75th, or the third quarter quell, which is a great word. Every 25 years, the rules change. I believe the first quarter quell was... I... There was something with it, and I don't remember it. There was, I don't think we find out what it was. Okay. The second quarter quell was double the tributes, and that's the one that Hamish won. That's yes. not in the movie, but I read that. Yes. And the third one was probably supposed to be something different. But the new Game Master, who Katniss meets at this party, Plutarch, has an idea to throw a wrinkle in the system. And his idea is all of the tributes will be pulled from a pool of former tributes. Oh, it's his idea in the movie. Yes. Okay. Yes. 
Yes, I think so. It is not his idea in the book. I remember it being his idea. Anyway, naturally, this means Katniss is getting picked. She understands this. She desperately doesn't want Peter to get picked. So she tells Hamish, if his name is drawn, volunteer. And Hamish is like, fine. But if mine's drawn, I can't stop him. And of course, that's what happens. So Peter and Katniss back in the fire. They go back to the Capitol for their training after the reaping, get to meet some of the other past winners, current tributes, and they start making allegiances with the weirdos. There's still your your four careers. I think there's a brother-sister pair. There's a lady who sharpened her teeth because she bites the throats out of people and, like, another WWE guy. <laughs> um, but then there's, like, a bunch of weirdos. There's tech weirdos who won by electrocuting people. There's camo weirdos who won by hiding till everyone else died. Uh, there is, uh, Joanna, who is just fucking off her rocker, absolute revolutionary, ready to ruin shit. Do you know what her, how she won her game? I don't think it's specified in the movie, but I believe she pretended to be weak so that everyone would ignore her until she just started lopping off heads. Correct. Cool. Good for her. (laughs) Love her. (laughs) And then there is, uh, Fennec and Max. Fennec is from District 4. He was the youngest ever winner. So he's still pretty young. He was 14 when he won. And his girlfriend was also a former victor. And I believe her name gets reaped, but Mags volunteers as tribute, who was his mentor. And she's in her, like, 70s. Yes, she is an early winner. So Hamish makes it clear, not clear, but he lets Katniss know, hey, we're working for you here. Just tell us who you want on your side and we'll make it happen. So she picks the fucking weirdo crew. They go into the games. I don't think I'm missing anything important from the Capitol here. Oh, I am. Uh, That the night before big press conference thing. Yes. It becomes very clear that no one on this stage wants things to happen. Her costume for this is the wedding dress, which Snow requested she wear a wedding dress. But Cinna, our boy, Lenny Kravitz... Uh, makes it so when she spins, it catches fire and turns into a Mockingjay-inspired, you know, symbol of revolution. Mm-hmm. And Peta, during his bit, announces that she's pregnant, Katniss is pregnant, and at this point, members of the Capitol are like, we can't do this, right? Like, we she can't! can't <laughs> she can't go in there! We can't send a pregnant child into the Hunger Games! No, the baby's too young! Baby, That baby's not a victor, they can't go in there! It's against the rules! But, of course, the night ends with all 12 tributes. I don't know if the ones and twos. They do. They do. All 24 tributes from the 12 districts all hold hands and raise them in air in a sign of solidarity against going back into the games. Doesn't work. Games begin. Uh, They find out the arena is shaped like a clock. And every hour in each wedge of the clock, another disaster happens. One fills with poison. Uh, That's unfortunately how we lose mags. Uh, one is filled with... Blood rain. Blood rain? Blood rain. Blood rain. <laughs> Raining blood. Not yes. the Metallica song. Correct. Is that even a Metallica song? I think it's Slayer. It's probably Slayer. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Kyle, Kyle, we need your help. Raining blood is Slayer. Oops, my bad. <laughs> Call us out, Kyle. Call us out. One of them, there's like a bunch of lightning that strikes a tree at 12 and midnight. Yes. 
One is filled with howler monkeys that'll attack you. One is filled with, uh, what is the name of that bird? Jabberjays. Jabberjays. Something goofy and silly. Yes. Uh, that sound like the screams of your loved ones. Uh-huh. So various psychological and physical tortures. And then the middle is an island in a lake that can spin. And that's the cornucopia. That's where all the goods are. And that's where they begin. So over the course of the games, there's some violence. They figure out the puzzles. They figure out how it all works. BT, who is from District 3, he won his games by electrocuting a bunch of people. Uh-huh. Goes, okay, lightning strikes that tree at midnight. And a big t- tsunami of water at 10 o'clock comes from that wedge over there. Let's take this copper wire I have for some reason, tie it to the tree, run it down here, and then we'll lure the careers careers to the beach. And when the water comes down, they'll be wet, and then the electricity will strike the tree, and we'll electrocute them, and we'll all be fine. Like, they'll be gone, then we can just worry about each other. Katniss and PETA don't quite trust all of them, so they decide... They'll keep BT alive till midnight, and then they'll escape on their own and survive by themselves. They, the rest of the group, uh, Joanna and, or who makes the call? I think BT tells Joanna and Katniss to run the spool of copper wire. Yes. While Fennec and Peta protect him at the tree. Yes. And that's when the careers jump in. They break the wire, and they Do kill they BT. Know? Well, some something does. When this happens, Joanna stuns Katniss, removes the tracking device from her arm, and tells her not to move. Of course, being a 17-year-old girl full of hormones, can't decide which boy to kiss, uh, does not stay down, and she goes to find Peta, because he's the boy she wants to kiss now. Uh, She can't find Peta, she finds BT down, and sees that he wrapped the copper wire around a spear, and actually shocked himself on the force field. That's when she realizes exactly what she's trying. he's trying to do. Mm-hmm. She has an opportunity to kill Fennec, thinking he betrayed her. Snow wants her to do it, and she also declines to do that, because Fennec says, remember who the real enemy is here. So she wraps some copper wire around her arrow, and just as lightning is striking the tree, she shoots that arrow into the roof of the dome, which disables it, causes it to fall apart. As it does, a hovercraft descends through the hole in the Truman Show building. <laughs> Scoops her up like it did with two bodies previously that we saw in the movie. Which is weird, because we don't see that at all in the first one. They still do it, but... Yeah, we just don't see it. And that's probably budgetary. Uh, So it scoops her up, and then she wakes up on the hovercraft. BT is still alive, barely next to her. And she goes into a room and sees Fennec, Plutarch, and Hamish discussing the plan. And they drug her until they can get where they're going, which turns out to be... District 13. (gasps) What? Gasp. There was a District 13 and it's still there even though they said they decimated it to ash? (gasps) Who knew? And that's where Gail is. And Gail got her sister and mother out of District 12 before it was firebombed by the Capitol and wiped off the face of the Earth. But unfortunately, Peta and Joanna have been kidnapped and are being held in the Capitol. And this whole thing was a plan. Almost everybody in the games was in on it, trying to get Katniss out. Because at this point, she is such a an important symbol of revolution in Pan Am that they needed her alive. And they needed to have this massive act of defiance against Snow in the capital. And that's where the second one ends. 
I tried to keep that brief, but there's a it's a two and a half hour movie. It's very long. It's so long, <clears throat> and so much happens. Yes. So, I didn't want to get into politics last time. <laughs> we gotta get into politics this we're time. We're gonna get into a little. We're gonna get a little, a little political, a little revolutionary. Um, I, we should put a disclaimer out here. We decided to do this franchise before everything that's happening in Israel and Gaza. Uh, that's why we were very hesitant on the last episode to say anything about revolution. Uh, because it is a very complex situation. Our stance is that innocent people should not be killed, either to make a political statement or in retaliation for any sort of atrocity. Killing innocent people, man, woman, child, is wrong. We are praying for the safety of our Jewish friends who have family members and friends in Israel. We are praying for the safety of uh, Palestinians uh, because this is a conflict that is taking a toll on, like you said, a lot of innocent people and uh, unequivocally, uh, we condemn the murder of innocent people. <laughs> yes. So going forward in this episode, when we talk about revolution and terrorism and things like that, that is not us trying to make any further statement on the situation in the Middle East. It is solely about the contents of this novel slash film series. Correct. Is that a line drawn there? Yes. Are we good? We will probably talk about America, though. Oh, yeah. Well, it's a, it's a very American thing. That's why I said in the Middle East. Um... <laughs> Because uh, a main uh, theme of this, and is a theme of a lot of revolutionary fiction, uh, fiction in which a political revolution is the core, is that an act of revolution is considered an act of revolution when it's successful. Look at the United States of America. When it's not successful, it's considered an act of terrorism. Look at defend the Atlanta forest. So, yeah, um, I think I've danced around words enough. Um, so, where do you want to start? So, there's actually a quote. Um, so, one of the themes that one of the major themes of this book specifically, and the Hunger Games, the first book as well is this us versus them mentality. Mm -hmm. Because if you keep the populace divided and fighting amongst each other, they can't question the power structure. But in this book... Uh, that, oh, I was going to say, that's a common fascist tactic. Yeah. Um, look, at, look at the Trump presidency and blaming immigrants on everything. All of your problems are their fault. Prior to... Uh, I believe prior to the quell, I'm actually just double checking that. Right? Oh, listen to those pages flip. Yeah. That library copy. <laughs> listen. Uh, so, yes, prior to the announcement of what the quarter quell is. Because in the book, the timeline is slightly different. Okay. The victory tour specifically takes place six months between the games. Like six months after the games and six months before the next one. Because the goal is 
to remind everyone that the games are happening and the Capitol has this power. They yeah. want to make sure you remember. So uh, this is after the victory tour, prior to the major crackdowns, um, like at the start of the major crackdowns in District 12 specifically. Uh, and Katniss realizes, I can't let the Capitol hurt Prim. And then it hits me. They already have. They have killed her father in those wretched mines. They have sat by as she almost starved to death. They have chosen her as a tribute, then made her watch her sister fight to the death in the games. She has been hurt far worse than I had at the age of 12. And even that pales in comparison with Rue's life. Yeah. It's almost like it's a systemic problem. Oh, yeah. And I think it's interesting that um, she does so much to protect Prim. When Prim outright tells her, you don't need to protect me. Mom and I are fine. Like... There's an almost interesting sort of unreliable narrator. Because Katniss has fucking PTSD. Because she's a 17-year-old who's gone through incredible trauma in a universe where therapy doesn't exist. Yeah, and, and the way that's actually portrayed in the movie is fascinating. She and Gail are out in their hunting grounds. And he mentions he saw some turkeys so she turns uh, she grabs her bow and she goes to shoot a turkey and when she releases the arrow it becomes the guy she killed in the first Hunger Games and she has a breakdown then and there I believe in the novel she has recurring nightmares yes she has uh, I think she has one as well that uh, uh, Peta calms her down in the capital Yes, they, uh, she and Peta basically sleep in the same bed every night because it's the only way they can both sleep. Because they both have horrific nightmares. Yeah, uh, because of the uh, childhood PTSD. Yay! Um, um, where was I going with that? I mean, the, the, the theme of the whole book, the us versus them... Katniss is already a little bit too damaged to pick up on it, but over and over again, it's demonstrated how the capital is trying to divide them, mm-hmm. and also how people keep reaching out to her. Yeah. Like, when you get to... Finnick and Mags could not be more fucking obvious with what they are trying to do, because he, like, he approaches her. And yes, he comes on a little strong. With his sugar cubes? Yes. But that's his personality. Yeah. That's the or the the persona he's created, which is another thing I want to talk about. Yeah, but he's, he's a charmer. Exactly. He has to be, because that's how he survives. And we'll get into that more in Mockingjay. Mm. Um, but also, like, he and Mag specifically pick out archery uh, to practice on. Because, of course, that's a natural way for them to, in, to react and interact mm-hmm. with each other. Um... Oh, I'm sorry. In the book, they have, like, a week of training before yeah, the... they have a bunch of training as yeah. well. I, I didn't see them do any archery that I can recall. Uh, what appeals to Katniss is Mags' work on creating fishing lures. Yes, she does. That's how she ends up approaching Mags, yeah. is the fishing lures. But the first day when she is... I can't remember what it is. Speci- like, what activity specifically she's doing. Oh, fires. That's how she hangs out with um, BT and Wireless. Mm. Um, she stays there because they are... Finnick and Mags are at the... Um, 
the archery station and Joanna specifically is described as stripped down and oiling herself so she can wrestle. Joanna's naked like 80% of the time that you you are, meet her in this book. Fair. <laughs> I get it. Um, I would be too if I were portrayed by Jenna Malone. And then like, yes, also same. Very much same. Uh, and then in the arena, like... He saves BT. He saves PETA multiple times. Mm. And she still doesn't trust him. No, she because she can't trust anyone. Broken. But that's also what makes her this important leader to the revolution, is she outright refuses to wear a mask. She refuses to create a persona around herself to survive. She understands that that's fucked up. I'm not doing that. That's not me. And that is what's so empowering about her for everyone else is, hey, she didn't fucking play by the rules. She broke the rules, got the capital to break the rules to win this games. I'm going to break the rules too. And that's what's really inspiring the revolution. That's why in the trailer you heard the bit with uh, Prim talking about how now there's hope. Like she's brought people hope. I'd actually make the argument, because the other thing I wanted to talk about is how manufactured every part of life is Mm -hmm. in this universe. Like, the capital manufactures everything. It's very Big Brother is watching you. Everything they do is a show all the time. It's all about the impact. And that's why symbols are so dangerous for them. Um, That's why even the appearance of defiance is a problem. Because, yes, Katniss is... In the games, when she pulls out the berries, yes, yeah, she's defying them. I think a significant portion of the def- that defiance is, yes, yeah, she's defying the capital, but also she wants to fucking live, and she wants this boy to live, too. Yeah. Like, for her, it's survival. Like, she she is a perfect pawn yes. in all of this for both sides. Yes. Um, It doesn't work as well for <laughs> Snow. He tries to use her as a pawn in the Victory Tour, and it fails. Yes. But it's already too late. But it's, it's also because she's very close with Hamish, who's a member of this revolution, and he's influencing her. Yes. And... Uh, Gail is influencing her because he's part he's part of the revolution as well and Sin is part of the revolution so he makes this dress for her I don't know if she knew she does not what the dress is gonna do when she spins and becomes a Mockingjay but that is the symbol of revolution and it is on every screen the night before the Hunger Games and she is completely oblivious to it yep and they even say I can't remember the exact quote but at the end of the film Hamish even mentions why he doesn't let her know anything. And it's basically because it will work out better if she doesn't. It's in the book. He specifically says that they didn't tell Katniss and Peta because they would be the first people that the Capitol tried to capture. Yeah. And if they did, they couldn't torture anything out of them. Yeah. They could torture them, but they wouldn't get any information. Yeah. Um, Um, I don't think it's quite that in the movie, but I don't remember. And I didn't write it down. Do you get any information about how Hamish wins his game? In the movie, no. I do know how because I read a lot of information. So (laughs) Hamish wins his game kind of by accident. His whole deal, the like character that he puts on for these games is that he's smarter than everyone else. And he is. And that's the problem. So he actually tried, it's described, they watch the tape, because everything's on tape, of course. Yeah. So they watch the tapes of his his games, 
and they realize he basically just outlasted everyone because he was trying to find the edge of the arena. When he did finally find the edge of the arena, he realized there's a force field there and he ends up using that force field to his advantage to kill the District 1 tribute that's left between the two of them. If I recall, she throws an axe at his head and he ducks and the axe bounces off and hits her. He doesn't even duck. She has partially disemboweled him, so he collapses. It's like that fucking, um, Kenny Omega Okada match in New Japan (laughs) when Okada's going for the Rainmaker and Kenny's just too tired and falls over and Okada misses. What's that, what's that movie that you watched that's like, it's about the hyper violence, it's like, Ichi the killer. Oh, Ichi the killer? Yeah. Like, at the end, doesn't he, like, straight up have part of his intestines hanging out of him? Spoilers? Probably. It's been a minute. (laughs) It's been a minute. It's just, yeah, like, it's that type of imagery where it's described as, like, he is literally holding his guts inside of himself and collapses. She throws the... But he has taken her to this place because he knows. It's like every other Animorphs book when, like, Jake (laughs) is describing, like, as a tiger, like, he's losing a leg and his guts are on the wrong side and he needs to do more. (laughs) Body horror, the series. Gotta bring it back to Animorphs every time. Um, so that victory was seen as, um, that as Hamish symbolically mocking the Capitol. Mm-hmm. And that's why they punish him. I don't want to say how they punish him because I don't know if that, I don't remember if that's covered in Mockingjay or not. Um, but he is punished thoroughly for his crime of appearing to defy the capital yeah and they're trying to do the same thing with katniss but it's been and, and it's 30 hinted, more years or 25 more years it's hinted that they've done this to a lot of people too because the um they call them the, the morphlings yes and they both won their games by camouflaging themselves and outlasting and hamish mentions that they both faced a similar path to his where now they're just complete total drunks Completely out of it. They are And it's probably because the Capitol you know, killed all of their family and loved ones. They were specifically uh, addicted to morphine. Yes. Um, is that why they're called the morphlings? Yes. It, the oh, drug shit, in this universe... Is, oh, this <laughs> The drug in this universe is called morphling, but it's oh, okay. morphine. I read it as like, oh, they like camouflage, morph, like animorphs. You know how when you're on drugs and you really get into like textures and painting and designs. I don't know that's, what you're talking about. That's what they're going for. I have never done a drug. <laughs> not even one Not drug. a one drug. Not a single drug. <laughs> when I go by the drugstore, I say, not today, Satan. <laughs> Get that Tylenol away from me. So, Miss me with that shit. I'm very ill. <laughs> so, speaking of symbols, another really strong... Oh, I'm sorry. One more quick thing I wanted yeah. to say. When they're in the actual games, does Joanna straight up say the Jabberjays can't affect her because there's no one left she loves? Yes. Okay. She Well, she doesn't say that about the Jabberjays. It's... I, I can't remember the context of it, but she more or less yells into the forest like, Fuck all of you. You can't touch me. I'm going to come after your soul, President Snow. I was like, watch it. And she's like... They can't do anything to me. No one I love is still alive. Like, she is 
done. It is. She does that at the the pregame thing too. Like she's like, fuck, fuck this, and fuck everyone who has anything to do with this. And of course, diegetically, they censor her because it's a PG thirteen movie. Yes. Love that bit. Um, she. So I am gonna give you her backstory because it is not given in the movie. Okay. In or in in the book at all, this was kind of pieced together. It is very strongly implied that after her victory, she refused to become essentially a prostitute in the Capitol. Uh, and so the Capitol, President Snow, had all of her family murdered, slowly. Oh. Yeah. So it is... That it, seems to be his M.O. Yeah. Just, <laughs> just murder murder families. Can't, I can't kill the tributes. but Or the victors, excuse me. But I'll get their families. But although that's kind of come to an end with this one. So I actually wanted to bring that up too. I think, which you actually may have just answered my question. I feel like it would have been more effective for President Snow to say, instead of saying the the quarter quell is you reap from existing victors. No, no, no. You reap from existing victors' families. But if you kill all their families, you don't have anyone to reap from. But, yeah. that said... Well, again, knowing that Plutarch's in on it, I think that's why, at least in the movie, I, again, 99% sure it's Plutarch's idea to reap from existing victors. Yeah. There's another thing where she's describing the quarter quell ceremony. Um, she describes how, like, a kid has the box and it he, like, opens the lid on the box and there's, like hundreds of yellowing envelopes and he open he like breaks the seal and pulls it out and reads it and she's like there's no way the person who came up with this um wrote this exact thing it's too good to be true for um for his current situation i'm like bitch everything in the capital is manufactured you don't think he's making this the fuck up and all of them are blank so <laughs> funny you mentioned that there is a deleted scene I read about, and of course, didn't pull and save to the notes because <laughs> are they all black? Why are we? Why would we talk about this? No, it's it's different. Um, hold for scroll. So, in the movie, what you see in the final cut, Plutarch mentions adding a wrinkle to it, and then you get the reveal that they're going to pull from uh, existing uh, victors. The deleted scene. Uh, Plutarch enters a vault containing hundreds of safes marked with quarter quell numbers, and he removes the card with the original rule change for the third quell, burns it, and replacing it with the new one. Ah, so Plutarch literally changes it. He literally changes the rules. Okay. Which Snow wouldn't have been there when the original rule for the third quarter quell was written, um, as we'll learn in Songbird and Snakes, because he's not that old. Correct. So he wouldn't know that it's not what was originally planned. Right. I just, honestly, I just assumed it was blank and he would make it up. That's fair as well. Why not? Because <laughs> everything else in the Capitol is so manufactured, why wouldn't this also just be a, sh a show? Everything is a choice. We went to theater school. Everything is a choice. Yep, or assume everything is a choice. Yes. 
And then... Oh, the first quarter quell? I just looked it up because I had my phone out. Uh-huh. Uh, the citizens of each district voted yes, on who the tributes would be. That's what it was. Which is fucking crazy. Yes. <laughs> um, so, another minor thing I wanted to bring up is that you asked um, about the age limit. Um, but apparently the quarter quell has no age limit. Well, it can't. Because... Because the existing victors wrinkle. Yes. Um, but also, Mags is one of the earliest victors. Yeah. And, like, she's old. Mm-hmm. But she's not that old. This has only existed for 75 years. So, even if she was the victor of the first at 17 or 18... 18 is the oldest you can be picked? Yes. Even if she, if she was the victor of the first at 18, the oldest she could be is, what, 86? Wait. No, that's no. not... No. 88? 93. Wow, I was a math major for a semester in college <laughs> and only one semester. Um, the oldest she could be is 93, but yeah. she's not. No, she's not that old. Um, She... What I'm trying to say is, like... This is only a couple of generations yeah. that this has been happening. This is... It's it's us back to the end of World War II, the beginning of communism. Yeah. Like, that's... that's or communism? <laughs> Christ. The beginning of the Cold War. Oh. <laughs> when we were fighting communism. I say we, meaning the U.S. government. And we not... did not exist in any functional form yet. No, my parents barely existed in a functional form. It could be argued my father still doesn't exist in a functional form. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, this is just like something that it feels inescapable and eternal because it's just how things are. Mm-hmm. But it also makes sense why people who grew up in it, it's not a stable system. Yeah. And I think that might be why they target children in this. Yeah. Because I You keep do, them scared. I remember being 16 and believing everything an adult told me. And if, you know, the president said, this is how it is, that's how it was. It wasn't until I moved out of my parents' house I started questioning some of the things that they taught me. The other thing that's a useful reason you target children is because you're not just harming the children, you're hurting their parents. Mm-hmm. Because who's going to want to have children if you know that uh, they're they're going to be thrown into the reaping when they turn 12? Yeah. That's actually something that Katniss thinks about repeatedly is that... Because she realizes fairly early on in the book, like, she and Peta have to get married. And she's like, I wonder if President Snow is going to insist that we have kids. How am I going to feel when my child is standing for the reaping? What if their name gets picked? Are they going to engineer that their name gets picked? Well, luckily for her, assuming that the system is operating as it seems... Her child's name would only be in there a handful of times because they wouldn't need to pull supplies. She's a victor. They'd have plenty of supplies. Yeah. Um, but I wonder if there's any sort of contraception in this. Because it is it is a common fascist ideal of have lots of kids. Because you need more bodies to, to grind into dust to keep 
the capitalists fed. Like our, uh, I don't know if it's the temporary speaker or the new one that they voted on. Every woman in America owes the country a worker. So mad that that dude is two heartbeats from the presidency. Um, I don't know. Is he old? It could be fewer. Not um, old enough. <laughs> so you you're punishing by targeting the children. You're punishing mm-hmm. everyone. Yeah. Um, which is, of course, why it's... De- the cruelty is the point. It's yeah. why it's designed that way. Um, but, speaking of designing, the whole purpose of the capital is becoming what someone else wants, molding these victors into a consumable product. Because mm-hmm. it is very... It's implied with Finnick that he basically gets passed around through the capital. Like, he'll stick with one very generous sponsor per year, every year at the Capitol. And he, like, spends the whole season with them. And then he goes, uh, he, after the, excuse me, after the end of the season, he goes back home and never sticks with the same person twice. Um, So it's like... It's a form of prostitution, essentially. Yeah. Because it's like, yeah, you get the favor of the victor for however long. You're a commodity. You're not a human being. Yes. And I would also, I would make the argument that you said earlier that Katniss refuses to wear a mask. I think it's, what's that, what's that, uh, John Rubin line? Or, uh, (sighs) no gimmicks, everybody's got one. My My gimmick, uh, no gimmicks, mine is that I've got none. Exactly. Uh, her gimmick is that she doesn't have a gimmick. Her gimmick is that she's completely true and open and vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not true. Because I would make the argument that her choices are all, especially in this book, are designed to protect her family. Like, her original choice yeah. is also literally protecting Prim. But her choices in this book, it's kind of like how it, you... She she makes her decisions to protect her family, but that's still honest. You know what I mean? Right, like, it, there's nothing self-serving about it. And I think that's why she's such an inspiration for this revolution. Is right. because she's not self-serving. So, she's not blatantly doing the obvious thing that everyone else has done to there's, survive. There's a point where she and Gail have a fight in the uh, thing when he says, I love you, and she says, I know. Um, <laughs> Do they have Star Wars in Panem? Uh, he says... I don't want anything they made in the Capitol. And she says, anything they made in the Capitol? Was that directed at me? Does he think I am now just another product of the Capitol and therefore something untouchable? Because she is. At this point, she is a Capitol. She is a product of the Capitol. Because even if you're trying... Even if you're trying to avoid something, if all you ever think about is avoiding it, you're still letting it control your life. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's like I was saying before, how she's just a perfect pawn in this game of chess that she doesn't know is happening. Yeah. Because the capital is trying to mold her to use her as propaganda. To yes. keep instilling fear, just that spark of hope as long as it doesn't set a fire. Uh-huh. But just keep instilling that fear. But hey, maybe you'll win. But the revolution understands that she's not going to play along the way everyone else will yes. because she needs to protect her family and she's honest about that so they're taking advantage of that no ethical participation under snow yes i mean there's no ethics under snow um he's killing children another thing that this book and movie i feel like does really well is going back to the us versus them thing 
Yes, they are literally commodifying the bodies of children and, in this book, adults in multiple senses, both as victors and also for uh, products, whatever. But Katniss and Peeta do the same thing to the people in the Capitol. She literally calls her prep team pets. She never says that to their faces, but she refers to them as pets because she doesn't see them as people. She thinks they're... She thinks their lives in the capital are so vapid and and uh, basically just uh, vapid is the best word I can use. Yeah. That she it's so far removed from what her reality is that she can't relate to them. They're alien to her. They're like pigs eating whatever snow throws in the trough. Exactly. And Peta actually, you brought it up the um, the puking the syrup of Ipecac or whatever that is. Yes. What's that, is that what that's called? Something. Something Ipecac. I mean, I, I just take Pepto-Bismol. Um, I mean, I do too, but for very different reasons. <laughs> uh, Wait, is Pepto-Bismol a drug? Shit! <laughs> so, uh, when they do that, they start dancing together afterwards, and he's like, you go along thinking they're not so bad, thinking you can like them, and then... And you realize they're still divided because you yeah. are still dividing the people of the capital from... And it's also why you have the victors' villages because, yes, these people literally survive trauma, but you're still separating yeah, them and putting them above. There's still a barrier. Yes, and you want that barrier. And, and it's, it's that... It's a dangling of a carrot, too, having the victor village right there in the district mm-hmm. because what you're showing to those kids is, oh, I haven't eaten in three days. Maybe I'll volunteer like Katniss did. And then maybe I'll win and then I can eat. Uh-huh. I, there's even somebody, I can't remember which district it is, but it's on the victory tour. A little girl tells Katniss that she's going to volunteer too. And that breaks her heart. That just ruins her. In um, the final scene, you said in the movie it's Finnick, uh, where she, who tells her, remember who the real enemy is? Yeah. So in, that, that's a motif throughout the movie. I think yeah. Hamish says it at some point. Yeah, Hamish says it to her. Um, and she struggles with that because as soon as she's in the arena, she is in survival mode, in fight or flight mode. And she actually like deals with the fact she's like, we were like, I ate lunch with these people. Yeah. And I did not hesitate to murder them. as so- Like she it's described as she straight up shoots an arrow into Gloss's head, <laughs> like her temple. And in this one, yes, cashmere and gloss are the tributes from yeah, one. Does she? It's on the, in the cornucopia movie? in the bloodbath. I don't know if I, she does it in the. I can't remember it in the movie because there's a one of the scenes. Um, because it's a movie, and it's not first person perspective. There are a few scenes of Snow and Plutarch, or Snow and his granddaughter, yes. that we don't get in the book. And one of those scenes is Snow and Plutarch talking about moves and counter moves, and how they recognize that Snow needs her gone, but they need to do it at the right time in the right way. Do it in the games. Do it like this. Mm-hmm. At least this is what Plutarch wants Snow to believe. Uh, but what Snow says is, or what Plutarch leads Snow to believe, is that once she's in the games, Katniss will have no allies. She will shoot a friend, and then the revolution will lose hope because they will see the real side of her. So I was watching specifically for that, and I don't recall her actually killing anybody. I think uh, Peter drowns somebody. 
I think she actually in the no. You know what? She shoots one guy in the ankle and drops him off the off the bridge to the cornucopia. Yes, that is. Uh, I think it's Brutus. Yeah, she gets That's one guy the there. Other um, uh, district two. Tribute. Yeah. So uh, no, because Gloss then. Gloss and Cashmere are District 1. Yeah, They're I brother think, and sister. I think he comes back at the end. Joanna kills Cashmere. I I don't know what happens to Gloss then, but I don't think Katniss shoots Gloss. Okay. In the book, she no, definitely he's does. Still, he's still alive, and I don't think we see how he dies. I can't remember. I, I made no note of it. But I was definitely watching, because it gives that scene where she's aiming her arrow at Fennec so yes. much more weight that she's gotten this far. She's so close to the end of this game. There's only like four people left and she hasn't killed anybody yet. It's interesting because I kind of get the symbolism of both because Finnick is her friend and all you see is him trying to be her friend, but she's so closed off and guarded. She doesn't recognize it. She doesn't trust it. Yeah. The only people she trusts are Hamish and Peta, and yep. she shouldn't trust Hamish. That's why she's so angry at the end of the book. Yeah, because he betrayed her. He did. He, he broke his promise and he didn't save Peta. He saved her. Yes. Which I want to talk about that in a second. But also, in the book, it's actually Inobaria, the uh, teeth lady. Oh, okay. It's actually her that she is aiming at. And, of course, fin- she doesn't see Finnick at this point. Um, so, he is... She's aiming at Inobaria, and she realizes... Because she saw BT with the wire and the knife, and she's like, what is he trying to do? And then is coming in, and she realizes... Uh, Hamish's last words to her, which are remember who the real enemy is. And then she realizes what, who the real enemy actually is. And she's like, um, and that's when she does the wire and the arrow. And why would I need reminding? I have always known who the enemy is, who starves and tortures and kills us in the arena, in the arena, who will soon kill everyone. I love. Yes. I know who the enemy is and it's not Inobaria. I I I think it's, it's more powerful having a character actually say it out loud at that moment because then everyone in the districts is hearing that because you know everyone's watching everyone has to be watching it's interesting i i like this i can see the symbolism of both because in the um in the book yes it is the person who was an actual direct threat to her at that moment she straight up turns her back on inobaria to shoot the force field hmm um, and she's like, I know what I'm, she's like, I remove my aim from Inobaria to shoot the force field. That's almost a better act of defiance. Um, and then, but I like in the movie how it's like, she is actively defying the expectations put on her, however false, yeah. by Snow and Plutarch. Because Snow, Snow's character is everyone will do what is best for themselves. And to an extent, she has kind of done that in the sense that, like, he's using her love for her family against her. And so everything she's been doing has been to please him so that he doesn't hurt them. But at that point, she realizes it can't just be about them. When she and Gail are having the fight before he calls, before he essentially says that she's made in the capital. He tells her, what about the people? Because she wants to run. She wants to flee. Yeah. And he's like, what about the people who can't flee? Yeah. And it's not until he almost dies and she realizes it can't just be about me. 
it can't just be about my family because there are other families. Exactly. And it takes her that long to realize it because she's a 17-year-old PTSD. Yeah, And, and that's something that, like, I feel like it's a little lost in the movie is that she's fucking 17 years old. Like a, a and you, wildly pregnant hormones, just wild. She's not pregnant. <laughs> wait, was she really pregnant? No, she's. Not. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute. No. Um, but no, she's she's fucking seventeen years old. She has to pretend to be with not her boyfriend, or the president will kill her boyfriend. <laughs> Is that how Megan Rapinoe felt during the twenty nineteen World Cup? <laughs> Or Sue Bird, rather, when she wrote that opinion piece. <laughs> um, but, uh, like, she's... We're, we're talking this, like, macro story of a political revolution where she is the figurehead of it, willing or unwilling, knowing or yeah. unknowing. And this conflict between, you know, a fascist state and its, its constituents. When, in her head, half of her time is spent going... Do I like PETA, though? I think I might like PETA. And she's having a very, like, real teenage girl moment. Because, like, yeah. I mean, when I was 17, we were just, get, like, a couple years into the Iraq invasion and the Afghan invasion in the U.S. And there was all this talk about, like, insurgents and... And then as I got older, I read articles like, oh, no, we were just bombing weddings for no reason, you know, drone strikes and all that shit. And granted, I wasn't the face of, an, of a revolution at the time, but it was still like all that going around me. I'm like, oh, but yeah, but that girl's cute. <laughs> Do I like that girl? <laughs> like, People have always real. been people, even in the worst possible exactly. time frames to be alive. Exactly. So I have two questions that are kind of tied together. Okay. Um, they're both about Katniss. Okay. First question, and I know we differ on this. Do you think Katniss cares about PETA? So, uh, our good friend Mel Renette brought this up on Twitter the other day. And I'm using her Twitter name, not your real name, Mel. <laughs> I hope that's okay. Um, she brought this up on Twitter the other day before I watched the movie. And at the end of... Hunger Games, the first one. I don't think... I, th I think she saw him as a friend. At the worst, acquaintance. But not as any sort of romantic partner. Mm -hmm. She cared about him in the way you care about somebody you go through a traumatic event with, right? Trauma bomb. But also, I wouldn't say she used him, but... She used him with the berry thing at the end to survive. I feel like it's safe to say that if you both come out of it alive, it's not necessarily yeah. like. But it was like, I'm not gonna. I don't. I can't kill him because I care enough about him to not kill him. But if we both kill ourselves, then we bo neither of us have to make that choice, or they change the rules again and we survive, right? Mm -hmm. And through the first act and a half of this, that rang true. It wasn't until. There was a specific scene where it clicked with me that, oh, she does. And I think it's when they start sharing a bed. And I use that term, not sleeping together. because that's I mean, they're literally sleeping together, they're literally but they're sleeping not sleeping together, together, but they're not fucking. Correct. You know? They're trying to convince everyone they're fucking. And, and it's that moment where she recognizes that the only person in the world that can understand exactly what she's gone through is him. 
Because he went through exactly the same thing beat by beat. He was there. And no other tribute, no other victor can say the same thing because only one has ever gotten out previously. But she has that bond and it's extra strong because they went through the same thing. And I think that's when she starts developing actual feelings for him. Where that bothers me is that she acts as though she has those feelings with what she says earlier in the movie, but not through what she does. Like, she requests way early on, Hamish spare PETA, and I didn't really understand why. Because it didn't seem like she cared. Like, they lived... He had that line during the victory tour, like, we live 25 yards away, and it could be miles, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, she doesn't act like she likes him to him, but she still is willing to, like, sacrifice Hamish for him, you know? So... I think by the end of this, she does actually love him in that sense. Whether it's a lasting love or just, you know, the end of speed is <laughs> to be determined. So, I, I'm i going to bring up the pregnancy scene here. Okay. For two reasons. And I know the pregnancy thing is more expanded in the book. Yes. It's another thing where he drops the bombshell of, like, in the first one, he's like, I'm in love with her. And she freaks out. She's like, how did you make you like you made me look weak in this one? She reacts almost like she's surprised, but she trusts him. She doesn't trust anyone. She trusts Gail. She trusts um, Hamish and she trusts Peta, And that's it. So in this scene, she is grateful to him because he has now this bombshell that he drops she understands why he's doing it. Yeah. She, and, yeah, she gets it this time. Exactly. And she also has this thought. Um, uh, I know my face is projected in a tight close-up on the screen, but I don't make any effort to hide it. Because for a moment, even I am working through what PETA has said. Isn't it the thing I dreaded most about the wedding, about the future, the loss of my children to the games? And it could be true now, couldn't it? If I hadn't spent my life building up layers of defenses until I recoil at even the suggestion of marriage or a family. She recognizes that it's a defense mechanism. Mm. She recognizes that she is so damaged by the society that she lives in and also specifically what she has gone through that she can't even think about having a family because she... She can't bring a child into this world, this unfair world. I think that scene is, I mean, it cements it, but I do think she cares about him because that's part of the issue is that, yes, it's definitely, there is a trauma bond, but she also has that history with him Mm -hmm. where he fed her and he means hope. Peta is literally the hope of this series. Yeah. And Gail is... A different kind. Gail is the self-reliance that she has used up to this point, but it doesn't serve her anymore because that can turn sour so fast. It just clicked with me the why she wants to save him because while she is the symbol of hope for all of districts, you know, three through 12, he's her symbol of hope. That makes a lot more sense. I wish that were more clear. Everyone, like she and Hamish basically admit to each other. I don't know if they literally say it, but they both admit without saying it that PETA is the better person. 
She talks about the reason that she yeah. won the games is because she is a bad person. And PETA won because he was with her. He's the only... She says he's the only good person who ever won. Yeah, uh, Hamish has a line about him early on. I think it's before the reaping, even. Where, like, that boy is too good for anyone. Like, that boy is is too good for you. There's a line from Hunger Games that we're going to revisit in the next one. And it is PETA the night before the games start, when they're on the roof. Hmm. He tells her, I just don't want the capital to turn me into something I'm not. Yeah. Um, so very long answer, but (laughs) she does care about PETA because PETA represents the hope for a better future and in loving him and in choosing to love him or allowing herself to love him, she is allowing herself to hope for the future. Whereas her relationship with Gail is built on that trust that, but it's also essentially built in that. It's built in a universe where they were both literally starving to death. Yeah, it's <laughs> it, they're prison roommates who bonded. Yes, whereas and it's not that... more of a like a, a different kind of bond. Yes, and it's not that they don't love each other, and it's not that she, it's not that she's flip flopping. It's that you can have feelings for multiple people at once, and they can be born out of different sources, but still feel the same. And it's and it can <laughs> feel complicated. It, Yes. Especially when you're 17 and hormones are raging and you're starting a war. Exactly. So, uh, my next question is, do you think Katniss would have been better off as a martyr? Do you think she would have been a stronger symbol for the rebellion if she died? And the third book was from PETA's point of view. If she died in this Hunger Games? Yeah, if, like, let's I, say her last act was to ex- to explode the thing and they she actually died. She got crushed or whatever. And let's, let's revisit that question after we talk about Mockingjay after I see it. Because I don't know how the story ends here. Okay. So it's kind of hard to make that call now. Uh, okay. Because I don't know what happens when she survives. Fair. Fair. Um, but that's, that's going to be a, a fascinating question. Remind me when I actually sit down and watch the movies and... Yeah. I'll, I'll watch it through keep, that lens. Keep that in the back of your mind. Would Katniss have been better? Like, literally, yes, she would have been better off because she would have been dead and well, not yeah. have to deal with her issues. But, but like, I mean... would it have served the revolution better <laughs> if she were a martyr then as opposed to a leader? Yes. Okay, yeah, that's not bad. So... Um, but that, that kind of dovetails me into something I did want to talk about, um, which is in, in a revolution like this, everybody has a role to play. Hamish and Plutarch are working in the background. They're older, they know how the system works, and they've ingrained themselves in the different places of the system where they can manipulate the system. Yes. Um, Katniss is young. She's naive, and they use that to their advantage by making her the face of this revolution. She's young, and she's talented, and she's pretty, and she's from the poorest district, and she's got this cute romance with this attractive young lad, and she's going to lead us into freedom. And a fascinating thing I noticed in this is where does that leave the elderly? And there are two instances in this movie where we see an elderly person who is part of the revolution sacrifice themselves willingly for the cause. And the first is during the tour when they're in District 11. Uh, There's an old man who holds up the three-finger salute and whistles Rue's song. I do have to issue a retraction, by the way. Apparently, that did actually start in District 12 as a way to say goodbye 
to someone that you loved. Um, oh, the uh, symbol? Yes. Okay. But it And it became expands. a symbol because yes. of this. Okay, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Yes. Um, that was from the last episode, if you've listened to it. Uh, so, an old gentleman from District 11 holds up the District 12 farewell salute, whistles the, the four notes... And then everyone else in District 11 that's there at the, at the speech holds up the salute. But that old man who started it gets dragged up on stage and shot in the head in front of everybody. And I believe he knew full well what he was doing. But he needed Katniss to know that the district is behind her. That she has that entire district's support. And it was worth his life to communicate that with her in that moment. And to communicate to the Capitol that they will not be quiet anymore. Something that I feel like Snow did in this book was mm-hmm. overplay his hand. It is so obvious from every point, like at every point, that he is just doing this to punish Katniss. Mm-hmm. Like, the arena. He is willing to give another tribute active advantages Finnick specifically. Like, Finnick was clearly designed to win this. Yeah. it The water arena, there was a trident. I know there were other things. Yeah. But he was willing to give another tribute a distinct advantage over literally everyone else just to make sure that she got punished. Uh, the wedding dresses. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the reaping of uh, existing victors. It's so clear. Yeah. That this is just to hurt her. Yep. Uh, the second instance of an old person I wanted to mention yes, was uh, Max. When they are dealing with the poison gas. Uh, Which is specifically a neurotoxin. I don't know if that's yes. clear. It's, it kind of touches them and makes boils appear, but it, it can also just wash away. I just wrote it off as sci-fi future. It's specifically gas. a neurotoxin. They do lose control of their bodies if yeah. they stay in it for too long. So PETA gets too fucked up by it that he can't run on his own. So Mags, instead of letting Fennec make the choice between her and Peta, just walks into the poison so that he doesn't have to make the choice. Knowing that Peta and Katniss need to survive, and this will help that cause. Um, she so also yeah, sacrifices herself at the reaping. Because yes. Because Annie is the name who's called. Yeah. Um, and I believe at that point, she or... She might even know at that point that there is a greater game being played here. Uh, Mags, knowing that Fennec will probably survive. Mags definitely does. I know um, she knows once they're in the games. But I wonder yeah. how early... Because we find out later that a lot of the tributes... Like the Morphlings knew. One of them sacrifices themselves for Peta, and he doesn't even know their name. Three, four, six, seven... It's like Eight basically and 11. it's basically everyone but the careers. Yeah, there's a couple specific ones that are left out, um, but yeah. But they're not even in the movie. Yeah. Like everyone we see in the movie that's not a career is is in on it basically. Yeah. Um so I wonder how far back that goes because Plutarch more or less tells her at the thing at the president's house that like I'm doing this for you. In and the, she just, whoo, right over her head. In the book, he actually has a watch that has a Mockingjay on it and shows it to her. It's a disappearing Mockingjay, so you have to, like, hold it at a specific angle and it appears in, like, the etched glass. And this dumb bitch is like, 
Oh, he doesn't want other people to see it because then they'll steal his cool idea. No, he's literally telling you he's part of the rebellion. So dumb. I'm glad they cut that from the movie because that's so dumb. What, what they replaced that with Well, is, he was um, also, in the at the end of the book, he also tells her he was trying to give her a hint about the arena. Yeah, because it's a clock. Exactly. And it, it just would have made her look real dumb if they kept that in. Um, instead, they give her the Mockingjay symbol earlier. Uh, when they're on the train on the tour, she sees it painted on the inside of a tunnel. Yes. And that's when she realizes this means a little bit more than just a cool pin. So... Two things. Because I know for a fact that you don't get... Um, the source of her pin. She gets it from Prim in the movie, right? No. In the movie, she gets it at the black market from an old lady. And I can't remember the old lady's name, but I think... Okay. I think it's the same old lady in this one who... Is it Gracie they... Say? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> um, when they're fucking up the black market when the peacemakers come in. Mm-hmm. Peacekeepers? Whatever they're called. Yeah. Uh, I think she, like gets hit or something, so she's helping, like, ice her wounds and put pressure on it, and then she sees uh, Gail get whipped. Yes. And then she runs to help Gail. So I think it's that same old lady. So, um, in the book, she actually... Get, it, this character was entirely cut from the movies because she doesn't have... She's not that important. Um, she's, a, she's a female friend of Katniss's in the second book. Um, she's the mayor's daughter, and she gives Katniss the pin. The important thing about that is that um, the pin came from her aunt, who was a tribute with Haymitch in that quarter quell, oh. and died. Katniss finds out when she watches that her mother was friends with this woman. Oh, jeez. And the mayor's wife, it was her twin sister. So it was her aunt. So she gets that pin from this friend. Shit, I don't remember. Oh, and then there's another scene that is definitely, I know is cut. When she goes outside the um, the fence after it's electrified, she runs into two refugees from District 8. Whoops. Whoops. Uh, she runs into two dis- two refugees from District 8 during the uprising there. And she that's how she finds out a lot about the uprising. And that's the first inkling that she hears about District 13. What What is District 13's main export? Do you remember that from the first one? Uh, what was it, rather? Death? Uh, they, they don't mention it, I don't think. The District 13, Katniss was told in school... Oh, is it like nuclear weapons or something? Katniss was told their main export was graphite. She's told by Bonnie and Twill, which are the District 8 uh, refugees, their main export was nuclear weapons. They were the nuclear arsenal for the uh, previous, for Pan Am. Yeah. Now that does not, like, the district is mentioned maybe twice before they're there. You know, it's, it's, it's not really a thing in the movie. It's mentioned as a cautionary tale in the first one, and it creeps up more and more in Catching Fire. Um, Like, in the first one, when they do, like, the history of the Hunger Games little video thing, they mention 13 districts, but they don't mention what District 13 was. And then in this one, towards the beginning, it's, um, they mention that it was leveled, basically. Yeah. Katniss realizes that when they're doing, they're making an announcement that uh, the, because it is strongly implied by the Capitol that um, it was actually 
they dropped bombs or nuclear weapons on District 13. Ah. And because there's a reporter in District th- the District 13 area that tells them, oh, it's still, the ground is still too toxic, we can't go over here. But Katniss, Bonnie and Twill tell her there's a Mockingjay that appears in the same corner of the footage that's always there. It's the same Mockingjay every single time. And Katniss sees that and realizes. And then she talks to Hamish, and Hamish is like, nah, bitch, you crazy. While knowing. Yeah, knowing that that's where they're going. Exactly. <laughs> um, so she figures, she catches that, and she's like, okay, so they are lying to us about District 13. What I think is interesting is by the end of this book, they have done to District 12 what they said they were going to do to District 13. Or what yeah. they said they did to District 13. Or what they... Did they actually... Or... I guess I'll find out in the next book, huh? You will find out in yeah. the next book. Do you see any of the other sections in uh, the clock? Because we don't get all of them in the book. No. Um... The the one that's the, you get the blood rain blood rain but we the, only we only get that because Joanna comes out covered in blood exactly hot <laughs> um gotta keep my kinks out of the pot so it's the it's the tsunami <laughs> lightning tsunami lightning, blood rain howler monkeys poison gas jabber jays yes there is also one in the book that is just described as there's a cannon and then a hovercraft appears and it has to pick the pieces out of the water five different times. Well? (laughs) She's like, I don't ever want to know what's in that section. (laughs) Nope. It seems like the safe place is the cornucopia, huh? Or the beach. Well, the cornucopia spins. Oh, yeah, that's true. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then... So there is a quote that kind of sets up Mockingjay. Okay. Um, So I mentioned that Katniss is kind of an unreliable narrator in this already, in that she doesn't realize that she's unreliable, but like her thought pattern is clearly um, paranoid. She assumes everyone's out to kill her. Like she literally has to be told, yes, Joanna hit you. But it's to dig the fucking tracker out of your arm. She was, and she was a, uh, uh, not a pawn, uh, distraction, decoy. Yes. <laughs> she was a decoy to pull, to pull the careers away from you so that, that's why she cut your arm open and then spread the blood on your face, you and dumbass. And said, stay down. Yes. Yeah. She was trying to keep you alive. Um, but the quote that she has is, um. It's an awful lot to take in, this elaborate plan in which I was a piece, just as I was meant to be in the Hunger Games. Used without consent, without knowledge. At least in the Hunger Games, I knew I was being played with. Cool. That sets up her mind, uh, her, her frame her of sta- mind. Yeah. yeah, her state of mind going into Mockingjay is that, oh, even the people I thought I trusted, I can't trust. Yep. Because... They, how long, how do I know? I know they're lying to me. How long is it going to be until the lies are revealed? And I think that goes back into the, she's already not in a position to trust authority, but the whole point of District 13 is trusting that authority. And that's why she chafes so much. And we'll get into that more when we get to Mockingjay. I did want to briefly talk about symbolism uh, in propaganda, not like, Oh, this part of the movie represents this. No, I mean like like the use of symbols and propaganda, and a fascinating thing like 
the Mockingjay is a, the symbol of the revolution. Yeah. And I think even Katniss understands it by the time she's in the, the games again. Um, but there's a great little scene with Snow and his granddaughter. And they're just eating breakfast. And he looks and his granddaughter's wearing her hair in a single braid. And he said, why are you, when did you start wearing your hair like that? And she says, oh, everyone at school wears their hair like this now. And he's recognizing that there are more symbols coming out of this revolution beyond just the Mockingjay. He's losing control she of is the becoming, narrative. Exactly. She is becoming a symbol. Kids are wearing their hair like her because they want to be like Katniss and she's a revolutionary. And they're going to start behaving like Katniss and he's losing the youth in the capital. If I recall correctly, doesn't she start undoing it? Because he doesn't say anything. I, she might. I think she's like playing with it. Yeah, like he he doesn't actually say anything, and he's trying to be kind to her and like hold his reaction in, but she can tell he's upset, and I feel like I remember her just like quietly starting to undo it. I didn't recognize it as undoing it, but you might be right. Okay. But yeah, I just wanted to touch on that briefly. Yeah. Want to talk about uh. The movie itself? Yeah. Well, movie things. Movie things. So, uh, most of the cast is the same as the last time. Uh, we have a new director. Uh, the new director, and I think he covers the rest of them, is Francis Lawrence. Yes. He directed Constantine, I Am Legend, Red Sparrow. Uh, we got some new writers as well. Uh, Simon Beaufoy, uh, who wrote The Full Monty and won an Oscar for Slumdog Millionaire. Okay. And Michael DeBrun who won an Oscar for Little Miss Sunshine and also wrote Star Wars The Force Awakens. Okay. So there's some pedigree in this screenplay. Mm-hmm. Uh, Star Wars TFA probably explains why it's two and a half hours long. <laughs> Plutarch Heavensby is played by Philip Seymour Hoffman, who won an Oscar for Capote. He's also in Magnolia, Doubt. He might be the greatest character actor of the 21st century. I think that's yeah. so far because he's not I, like I would say maybe the greatest male male character actor. Sure, I'll take because that. obviously character actress Margot Martindale is the greatest female. <laughs> God damn it! <laughs> um, I mean, like even his leading roles were shit like Capote. Like he's playing yeah. a character, you know. Yeah. Um, BT was played by Jeffrey Wright, uh, who was in uh, Angels in America, The Batman, uh, The French Dispatch. Uh, Finnick O'Dare is played by Sam Claflin, uh, who's in Me Before You, Peaky Blinders, and Enola Holmes. I did not realize that he was not American until I heard him speak. You know... Out of character. If I try a British accent. No. no. It gets caught immediately. (laughs) But all these Brits coming out here, taking our jobs, mastering the the American accent. Australians you have to worry about. (laughs) Oh yeah, it's the Australians, you're right. Uh, Mags Flanagan is played by Lynn Cohen. Uh, she was in Munich and Synecdoche, New York. Wasn't Philip Seymour Hoffman also in Synecdoche, New York? Didn't he play the main yes. dude? I wonder if, if that's how minute. they Did I not connected. catch that? <laughs> no, I was just thinking uh, they were... Yeah, he was in Synecdoche, New York. Huh. Yeah. That movie's fucking a trip. That, that sure movie is. is fucking wild. Charlie, speaking of people who need some fucking therapy, Charlie Kaufman. Has Charlie one Kaufman? Oh my god, are we gonna do adaptation on this pod? <laughs> We're gonna have to. Probably. That that'll be a weird episode. Yeah, um, sure will. And finally, last but certainly not least, Joanna Mason, played by Jenna Malone. Uh, you may know from Contact, Pride and Prejudice, Nocturnal Animals. You didn't put Stepmom on there. What the fuck is Stepmom? 
uh, Julia Roberts picture from the 90s with baby Jenna Malone in it. I picked a Jenna Malone baby movie from the 90s. I said Contact. She played young Jodie Foster <laughs> in one of the coolest mirror shots that I'm still not 100% sure how they did. They made a sacrifice to some god. If you don't know what I'm talking about, the opening scene of Contact includes a scene where Jenna Malone is running up a staircase, following the camera up the staircase, and then as the camera zooms out, it zooms out from the mirror of the medicine cabinet she opens, and I don't know how they fucking did it. I know there's explainers out there. I've seen them. I still don't fucking know how they did it. Cool as shit. Love that shit. Uh, but this God is the bless. Jenna Malone uh, household stan. Stan household. Oh. The scene where she strips in the elevator? So funny! So, they shot that on location in a hotel, and she actually stripped naked for the takes. Of course she did! There was a take where she's fully naked, and then the door opens, and a hotel employee carrying coffees is trying to enter the elevator. I think I knew about that! she's trying to hold character, and she can't do it. I, considering how much of a menace Jennifer Lawrence was on the first uh, first movie, I feel like that would be like a good prank on her if you didn't tell her that it was just going to be like full boobies. I mean, if you if you look at the uh, the facials of Woody Harrelson, Jennifer Lawrence, and Josh Hutcherson during that scene, they are fucking hilarious. <laughs> like. Jennifer's doing something with her mouth that is this weird mix of, like, are you serious, disgust, and arousal? It is fascinating. It is so good. How, okay, AO3, how many fanfics are there of Joanna and... (laughs) Not enough. This is the first film with a female lead to top the annual box office since The Exorcist. And the first with a sole female protagonist and primary marketing focus since The Sound of Music. Wow. Yeah. And this movie's 10 years old now, so it would have been the first in 40 years. 318, by the way, which is way fewer than I expected. Yeah. So, yeah, this was a huge fucking box office movie. Every, every, Hunger Games 1 and this one, when I was looking at box office data, it's like top 30 all time in the US. Like... It's, it's topped so many, it's broken so many box office records for like weirdly specific things like female protagonist and... It's almost like women buy movie tickets. I'm shocked. It's almost like you don't have to have a male lead. Hmm. We talked about last time Jennifer Lawrence being a menace, injuring people. Your boy, uh, uh Sam Claflin. <laughs> he is a clumsy bitch. Is that why he was in a wheelchair for me before you? <laughs> Maybe. Um, so the arena, the water scenes, they filmed in a water park outside Atlanta. And the water was fucking cold. Oh no. So the director is like, Mags, you're old. You're not going in the water. <laughs> Sam Claflin said, fuck, you're not. <laughs> Sam Claflin said, all right, hop on, we're doing a take. And he slipped and fell, dunked her right in the water. <laughs> He felt like shit, and she thought it was hilarious. <laughs> I think there's a quote about from Jennifer Lawrence talking about how Sam fell, like, at least once in every take. Oh, yeah, every scene, like, he fell at some point. <laughs> like, 
I don't know how they got a a movie out of it with him, like with fucking Sugar Cube Boy, which he ate the sugar cubes each oh, take. Oh no! He ate a box of sugar cubes doing that scene. Apparently, do you have anything about the fish? Uh, I read the thing about the fish. <laughs> How they were really eating raw fish. Covered in sand? Yes. And uh, Jennifer Lawrence really didn't like fish, so the guys were just roasting her. Apparently, (laughs) this is another old one that I remember. I don't know if you have this or not, but apparently before her kissing scenes, especially with Liam Hemsworth, she would eat tuna fish. Like tuna fish sandwiches from catering. That's funny. Just to fuck with him. Fucking menace. She's a (laughs) fucking menace. I love her. Uh, Donald Sutherland and Jenna Malone played father and daughter in future episode of the show Pride and Prejudice. Yes, they did. I feel like every episode we can bring up Pride and, Pre- Pride and Prejudice, we will and we'll never the cover what, it. It adds We're it's never like inversely proportional. We're going to cover it by me editing all the references <laughs> made from other episodes. <laughs> That's how we cover Pride and Prejudice. I will say, though, she she is great as, a, um, I think she plays Lydia. She was She was a really talented child actor. Like, the the few movies of hers I've seen when she was young, like, she's she's a killer. Like, it is very hard for me to remember your performance in a movie that also contains um, Rosamund Pike and Kira Knightley. Yeah, right? <laughs> um, Frances Lawrence uh, heard a lot of the criticism about the shaky cam from the first one and went, okay, we're going to shoot on IMAX instead. So they actually shot all of the arena stuff on IMAX. I never knew that until I recognized the um, aspect ratio change in the last couple scenes of the movie. And I was like, oh my god, what the fuck? The aspect ratio changes as she's going up the tube into the arena. I I didn't notice it then. I might have noticed it subconsciously, but I noticed it at the end and I was like, oh my god. Yeah, it changes. That's, That's really good. I love that. I feel like that's a really good... You could also view that as a Katniss comes alive and all of her senses are working on overdrive as soon mm-hmm. as she enters the arena. And also, it doesn't really like fuck with the spirit of what they were trying to go for in the first one, where he wanted the shaky cam because he didn't want to like Hollywoodize the violence and glorify the violence. He wanted yeah. it to feel real. There's not as much violence in this arena. Yeah. It's a lot of natural stakes. Yeah. And it still works. It still works really well. Um, I didn't have many things. I did have a few options for who was going to play Finnick O'Dare. Taylor Kitsch is on that list. And Enemy of the Pod Army Hammer. (laughs) He is too fucking old. Ten years ago? He was too fucking old then. I mean, well. Finnick O'Dare is supposed to be 24. Because it's been ten years since he won. How old, hey Siri, how old is Army Hammer? Too damn old. I hope that picked it up. He would have been 27. But he's old money, which means he's like he, weird. Yeah. It, he, he might have played it well, but also, ugh. Yeah. Yuck. Also, names for uh, director that were talked about. Steven Soderbergh. <laughs> no, but they, like, two-thirds of the fucking trinity, Alfonso Cuaron and Alejandro Inarito. Were both. You know my feelings on Quaron. Inarito would probably be good. Uh, Cronenberg? No! <laughs> it's not body horror! No! And the one I kind of wanted to see, Duncan Jones. Who, you, judging by the look on your face, 
Don't know who that is. Nope, I sure don't. Duncan Jones directed Moon. Oh, Which is one of my favorite performances. He's a Nepo baby, but he's David Bowie's kid. (laughs) If and you don't know. Um, But he would have just come off source code. So, yeah, and he wound up doing, like, Warcraft, and then nothing since. But I wonder how his career would have progressed had he done this if instead of... If he got of, this IP instead of... Instead of, of Warcraft, yeah. Yeah. Because they made so few changes to the book, I imagine his ver- vision of it would have been very similar. He just might have gotten some different performances. But he's gotten some great performances out of, like, Sam Rockwell and Moon. I think we were we covered this in you know actually you remember how we were talking about Woody Harrelson as a good Hamish I feel like Sam Rockwell would have also been a good Hamish oh my god but maybe a little too young at the time yeah now like he would be grizzled a Sam Rockwell oh my god he's um, he's such an underrated actor he's a fucking brilliant actor um shoot what was I gonna say before. Sam Rockwell took over my brain. I don't remember. I might have I might have mispronounced his name. I think it's in Yaru too. And I'm not rolling my R's. My Spanish ain't good. Mi español es no muy bueno. <laughs> Which is a grammatically incorrect sentence I learned. It's a lyric from a song. Of course it is. And uh, the first Spanish class I took in seventh grade, everyone, or the teacher was like, do you know any Spanish? Tell me what Spanish you know. And... Uh, some kids were like, oh, I know hola, I know gracias. And I was like, mi espanol es no muy bueno. And she was like, yes, but no es muy bueno. And I was like, oh, that's a joke, isn't it? (laughs) Donde esta la biblioteca? (laughs) That is all the Spanish that I know. Well, it's fitting that you would ask where the library is. Yes. (laughs) See, the important one to know in whatever foreign language you're learning. Donde esta la baño? El baño. El baño. I, when I went to Thailand, they used a different alphabet from ours. I didn't learn a lot of Thai. I didn't learn really any Thai. But I could recognize the word bathroom when it was written down. I, fig- I figured that out before we even left the airport on arrival, and it saved my skin more than once when we were out in public in, in Thailand. Like, I know those symbols. That means potty. This way, lads. <laughs> How did we get there? <laughs> Spanish. Something about. In Yuritu. I'm I'm out of shit to talk about. Um, well, I'm not completely, but I'm tired of talking. So next is gonna be Mockingjay, which means for once you're gonna have more work to do than me. I've gotta watch two two and a half hour long movies for this shit. Uh, I will I will inform our listeners that because you have not seen part, you have not seen Mockingjay part two before. Correct. I want to watch that with you because it's also... I haven't seen it since it was in theaters. Okay. Oh, that's right. You went to that without me. I did. I went to that without you and I met a very lovely girl and I held her hand during the one scene. I can't... <laughs> what scene? Tell me what scene. <laughs> I can't tell you. It was not a romantic scene. Um, I actually held her hand so hard that uh, I hurt her hand and I felt bad. <laughs> Is this scene going to cause me to bring up the Animorphs book where Tobias gets tortured for a... 90 pages? No. Okay. <laughs> no, it will bring up uh, another one if you finish the series by then. I'm um, we'll see. So. Yeah. That, yeah, I think that's it. I think that's about it. We're going to go into Mockingjay. 
Yeah, we'll, we'll finish the story before the story gets a prequel at the end of November. I am already pretty disappointed for that movie. See, the amount I'm enjoying going through this franchise now, paired with your just disappointment in the prequel, makes me just fascinated for what this could be. I can see the seeds of the prequel being planted specifically in the movies. Oh, that was the question I wanted to ask you. Um, Suzanne Collins. I know she had a writing credit on the first movie. She wasn't in the credits that I saw on this one. Okay, so it's just the adapted by. Yeah. Is she back for Mockingjay or is that still... I haven't looked yet. Okay. Well, that was what I wanted to ask. Yeah. We'll figure that out next time. Yeah. But until then, uh, you can find us on the socials. Our link tree is in the bio. Uh, with the state of the Twitter every day fucking shitting on New its own horrors. face. Uh, who knows what those socials will be, but that link tree is there, and I'll try and update that at some point when necessary. Um, yeah. That's all I got. Yeah, fucking... I wish I could whistle. I'd, I'd whistle the thing. 